PM board bombs. Welcome back to another EM Board Bombs podcast, where board studying continues to be enjoyable, exciting, unforgettable. I'm Blake Briggs, and I'm joined by the illustrious Dr. Travis Smith. Ooh, illustrious. I like that. Yes, yes. I feel like every time I come back on, you know, you, you're, you're even nicer. And even before the recording, I mean, uh, so uh, thanks for having me back, man. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Good to have you as part of the team. As you know, Travis Smith is one of our regulars. He is basically essentially part of the Ian Bombs family. He is uh, one of our head editors on the site. He has published quite a large number of our documents, and he's been on a number of podcasts too. So good to have you again, as always. For each 15-minute episode, you can gain high-yield board knowledge. As we like to say, come for the stems, stay for the content. Remember our EM Rapid Bombs podcast. You can find us at emrapidbombs.supercast.tech. What is EM Rapid Bombs, you may ask? That is our premium podcast. If you enjoy EM Board Bombs, but you want a TikTok version of our podcast, that's what Rapid Bombs podcast is. Some people have some questions about that. They're like, hey, we do like the banter, though. We like the fun, excitement. Well, you still get that, but it's much more abbreviated. Each episode is just two to four minutes long. It's rapid, high-yield bombs in a question-answer format. All you're getting awesome, awesome pearls for boards and for clinical practice. It's seared into your memory in a really easy, memorable way, and it's this drip learning format. On average, we drop about four episodes a week, so you get a new podcast delivered to your feed almost daily. It's pretty awesome. It also comes with the script of what we discuss in the podcast, so you can look things up really easy and has easy links to all of our content on EM Board Bomb. So pretty awesome. Take a look at it. And uh, feel free to check us out at emboardbombs.com if you have any other questions. All right, Dr. Smith, you ready for the topic? I'm ready. I, I love headaches. I love migraines. I love treating them. It's, it's almost instant gratification for sure when, when they come in and they leave feeling much better. So let's go. Let's go. Hey, so a migraine headache is an episodic disorder marked by severe headaches. It's, it's very common pathology and a common cause of benign headaches presenting to the ED. We don't really understand the pathophysiology, and it's not tested on. So guess what? We're not going to talk about it. (laughs) The treatment of migraine headaches, along with safely ruling out more dangerous causes of headaches, is critical to any EM physician. So migraines are common. They're up to 12% of the U.S. population, and that's diagnosed migraines. I'm sure that number is higher. We just don't know about it. Women are more frequently affected than men, and there are many varieties of migraine headaches. The most common presentation is a migraine without an aura, meaning just a common migraine, severe headache. So unfortunately, and you've seen this a lot, Travis, I'm sure, the word migraine has come to mean bad headache. You know, it's a layperson's term that they use that unfortunately confuses clinicians. And so someone can come in and say, I'm having a migraine, and to the inexperienced clinician, they think, oh, they have a history of migraines. And that leads you astray to not think about serious causes. Exactly. They say, oh, I'm having a migraine. And I'm like, hey, migraine, has someone diagnosed you with that before? They're like, no, 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 it's just a bad headache. So 100% agreed. You know what? If you can't remember what the definition of a migraine is, there's a, I always Google it, IHS classification. We'll, We'll post it maybe in the document coming up so you can all look at it. Just Google it. So the thing about migraines is, is that, and Travis is going to talk about the clinical features in a minute, and we'll talk about how to not miss the red flag symptoms or signs, 
is that migraines are recurrent and chronic in millions of people. In about 75% of all migraines, the attacks are triggered for endless reasons, from like visual stimuli, weather changes, alcohol, sexual intercourse, menstruation, psychological stress as well. And it's crazy. And COVID. And COVID COVID too, yeah. Paying bills, taxes. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Please do not ask the patient if this is the worst headache of their life. It's not a good idea. And that question is not associated with an increased likelihood ratio of assisting in any diagnosis. Oh, thank you for that. If you didn't say it, I was going to say it. So usually there's a prodrome. These occur in about 75% of migraineurs, consisting of a variety of vague symptoms such as yawning, depression, anxiety, neck stiffness, irritability, uh, some olfactory, gustatory stimulation, and even changes in bowel movements. So in aura, only about 25% of patients will have an aura. And, and often the headache accompanies it either before or shortly after that. According to guidelines, it only takes one migraine with aura to be diagnosed with migraines versus that of five migraine episodes without aura. So classically, auras are gradual and onset. They last no, no longer than a few hours. Usually the, the aura lasts about an hour, though. There might be a, a mix of positive and negative symptoms. Importantly, these symptoms are distinguished by complete reversibility. They usually should also go away with an hour. If you're having someone with an aura, like a numbness or something that's lasting longer than that, that should be a red flag. Some more details. So auras can be visual. They can be bright spot or focal visual loss, gradually expanding to involve a quadrant or hemifield of vision. This is what we call a scotoma. There could be zigzagging lines often appear as well. Some sensory changes can be tingling in in one limb or on one side of the face. Uh, It's associated with numbness, may last up to a few hours, but rarely longer than an hour. Language, this is an uncommon one. It's marked by wording difficulties that can include dysphagia. Motor cause is most rare. This is when, you know, one limb or greater is weak, there's facial weakness, and this is called a hemiplegic migraine. Usually when patients come in with this, I don't know about you, Dr. Briggs, but if someone has a, a language or a motor symptom with a headache, I usually work those people up before I say, oh, that's more likely a, uh, you know, a migraine with aura. It's kind of a diagnosis of exclusion. I mean, what, what about you? Yeah, you know, I was just about to say it if you weren't going to say it. It's unfortunate because everything you're describing right now is like making me feel like I'm going to have a migraine. <laughs> Because I'm nervous. So these patients that come in, you know, you're just going to have to worry about stroking these patients, you know, especially if they're older. Like you can't exclude life-threatening causes just on the basis of your exam. There's a reason that this disease is called the great mimicker. And, you know, migraines, just like low glucose or high glucose, can cause such interesting neurologic presentations that you're just going to have to rule out the scary stuff first. And you can definitely treat their headache but we'll get to this later. Know that the treatment of the headache doesn't tell you the diagnosis. 100%. And, and, and thankfully, these, these don't happen that often. So if you see it, it's not wrong to admit a headache patient. I mean, I haven't admitted a headache patient in a while, but if they have these features, it's definitely something that needs to get ruled out first, either with an MRI or consultation with a neurologist or, you know, if needed, lumbar puncture. Another thing about auras is they, they can occur in sequence, but shouldn't usually occur simultaneously. If they do, this might raise concern, like we were talking about, for a more concerning intracranial process. That's a big pearl. That's a really good pearl. In, in the headache, classically, it's unilateral. It's throbbing or pulsating. The intensity gradually will increase over a few hours. It's not like that thunderclap headache where, you know, you ask them, did the pain kind of, was it worse within the first minute? If it is, usually that's what we would call a thunderclap headache versus a headache that's gradually getting worse. And four hours later, they're like, no, it's worse now than it was when it started. Usually they'll have nausea and vomiting. 
That's very common. And they'll either have photophobia or phonophobia. Usually you walk in, sunglass sign, lights out, they're under the covers. Many of these attacks resolve with sleep. That's maybe one of the reasons why we, we target these medications that make them sleepy. And these episodes last for a few hours and as long as uh, several days. But sadly, none of the above symptoms you know, that we just discussed are wholly unique to migraine pathology. There is a lot of overlap. And so one must still consider more sinister headache causes, especially if there's a red flag symptom kind of mixed in there. You know, there's a whole bunch of different migraine subtypes that we'll talk about. Yeah, these are really interesting because they don't teach us in med school, really. <laughs> Maybe they taught me, but I definitely, you know, forgot. <laughs> but, you know, definitely in the ER, I mean, it's such a common complaint. I mean, this is like bread and butter stuff. I mean, this is bread and butter stuff. You definitely should know it. And, and you know, it behooves us. And I think that's going to be the word of the day, behooves. Oh, man, I love it. Should behoove the clinician to rule out other more dangerous causes of a headache. Gosh, you're so smart, Travis. Behoove. Oh, man. That's a hard word to say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What do you know about a retinal migraine? Uh, I know that uh, that it's an ophthalmologic condition. <laughs> well, it's a specific subtype where there is a scotoma or blindness occurring for up to an hour, and I, I feel like a, a, you know I feel like that's more of a common of a, a a migraine type that I see than a, than a motor type, a motor weakness. And um, you know you must distinguish this from amaurosis fujax. And um, is that how you say that amaurosis fujax? <laughs> I, I I think that's how you say it in Florida. Yes. <laughs> How do you say it in Alabama? Uh, probably this very similar. <laughs> um, then we have a vestibular migraine. And I know we talked a lot about uh, vertigo in the past with Dr. Peter Johns. So take a look at that for vestibular migraines. But it is a, a sub migraine subtype. We also have a hemiplegic migraine where you get a motor weakness or a weakness in the face. Um, and then a scary one, migraine with brainstem aura. That's rare. I mean, the hair on my back standing up, and I don't even have hair on my back. <laughs> you know, usually you're going to get brainstem symptoms. You know, we had the deadly Ds, right? Dysarthria, diplopia, vertigo would be one, change in level of consciousness. So hopefully if you see that with a headache, you're not like, oh, that's just a migraine with brainstem aura. Uh, head on home. Here's some Toradol and Phenergan. Yeah. Follow up. In a month. <laughs> Hey, so speaking of bad things, it's up to us to roll out the bad causes of headaches, and we do this by asking and searching for red flag symptoms. It's important to note that most patients who present with headache do not need any labs or imaging. Your diagnosis should be simply based on a compatible history, exam, and eliminating other potential causes. Wait, so not everyone needs a head CT and a CBC and a CMP? Oh my god, yeah, yeah. So clinical features that favor migraine over tension headache include nausea, photophobia, phonophobia, and worsening of headache with physical activity. There are diagnostic criteria that you do not need to know. It is not the EM physician's role to definitively diagnose migraines. Let me make that clear. Do not tell a patient that you are diagnosing them with migraine headaches. Concur. We feel that, yeah, we feel that should be left up to a neurologist or the patient's PCP, whom they routinely follow up with. In fact, our job, which we should be proud of, is to rule out other, more severe causes of headaches. Some use the Snoop mnemonic to help them determine this. Why don't you tell me a little more about that, Travis? Oh, Snoop mnemonic? Oh, man. So, systemic signs and disorders, neurological symptoms, onset that is new or changed and the patient's greater than 50, onset and thunderclap presentation, and then papilledema precipitated by exercise. I mean, th those are the big ones. Got it, got it, got it. Okay, interesting. So yeah, the bad causes of headaches to think about. 
Subarachnoid hemorrhage, probably the biggest, baddest one that we think about. Meningitis, vertebral or carotid artery dissection. Carbon monoxide poisoning, getting a little bit weird. Acute glaucoma, or brain mass or space-occupying lesion, and temporoteritis, depending on the age. Said rate, said rate. Said rate, said rate. Hey, Travis, why don't you get into when to perform neuroimaging, since we just mentioned all these scary things. <laughs> well, you know, there's no real strict criteria to help uh, to help us out with this, but certainly there are clinical features which we talked about, you know, that should stand out when we strongly should consider imaging. A lot of times, you know, a first-time presentation or a headache that is worse than normal for a patient, maybe they come in, maybe they're 45, maybe they're 50, and they don't get headaches. And now all of a sudden they're having headaches that's causing nausea and vomiting. I would say it behooves us to at least look at some imaging, right? Twice in a day. Yep. Wow. And uh, a lot of times, you know, patients have CT scans from prior, and, and maybe they don't remember, but I think first-time headache, you know, worth some concerning features, definitely. Any significant change in pattern, frequency, or severity of headache. So someone that has migraines, and now they're saying they're having, you know, headaches that are waking them up from sleep at 4 a.m., that's mm-hmm. concerning. Sudden onset, that thunderclap headache. Headache when you're exercising or doing something. With my medical students, I always ask them, what were they doing when the headache started? You know, were they, were they exercising? Were they running? Uh, or were they just sitting there watching a movie? I feel like that's important. Uh, new complex symptoms or auras that the patient has not previously had. Multiple auras occurring at once. We talked about the bad types of auras that we get to get worried about or headaches that don't resolve. So, I mean, if, you're, if someone's having an aura or some visual scotoma um, or vision loss that is not going away, especially after treatment, that needs to be looked into. And then a new onset headache in an immunocompromised patient, either you know someone with HIV or AIDS, somebody who is an organ transplant patient, and they're on you know one of those medications that I can't say that usually end in MAB um, <laughs> or NAB, or, NAB or, or anyone that has uh, you know our favorite catch-all altered mental status, toxic or metabolic encephalopathy. Those are kind of the, the big red flags to look for. And generally, a CT head without contrast, it, it's probably the first-line test for these patients. Um, but just know that if you're worried about something, METS, or you know somebody that you're looking for, maybe possibly a, an infection, you might need to get a CT with IV contrast. And then if it's something uh, you're concerned about, a uh, vertebral artery dissection, you know, you're going to want to get a CT angio of the, of the brain. Labs usually aren't helpful either. Wait. Routine labs are not helpful? Mm, um, maybe just the SED rate, but usually labs aren't helpful. <laughs> usually labs aren't helpful. And so we don't routinely need them. So yeah, thankfully you don't need to go and uh, get a, uh, a BMP before a CT head without contrast. Or you don't need to get a BMP for a CT head with contrast. You know what? I concur again with you. That's twice in a day. This is awesome. Yeah, it's going well. Hey, let's talk about abortive therapy. So abortive therapy ranges from simple analgesics to antiemetic medications to triptans. The earlier these are given, the more effective they are. So never delay treatment just because you're doing a headache workup. The single larger doses are better than small repetitive doses. And in general, this applies to all the agents right now that we're going to talk about. Oral agents in general are the least effective. So if you're going to give something, give it IV or IM for the most part. We'll talk about the exceptions soon. So for mild to moderate attacks, the key here is no nausea or vomiting. And they're sitting there, and you can mistake their headache for a tension headache. These patients all respond well to simple acetaminophen and any NSAID. So the NSAIDs are going to be at standard doses, and you can choose from ibuprofen to naproxen to diclofenac or diclofenac if you're from Canada. And 
really the acetaminophen is going to be at a thousand milligrams and all the other NSAIDs are done at their standard, you know, respective doses. So ibuprofen can be 400 or 600 milligrams. That's what I typically use just because of the ease of getting ibuprofen everywhere. There are no studies comparing the relative efficacy or NSAIDs. They are tried first because they can be given orally, they're less expensive and less hassle to give, and usually these patients are ambulating the ED. They look generally okay. They have a mild headache. Travis, why don't you talk about the uh, moderate to severe attacks? This is where it's getting into some of my favorite drugs. Well, I was just going to tell you a true story. I had a patient that came in with a headache. I came to work 6 a.m. They had uh, a headache, woke up at 2 o'clock with a headache, and they took Advil. Uh, on their way here, mm-hmm. and by the time they got here, their headache was gone, and they felt better. So, um, <laughs> Advil works, folks. Advil works. Then they went home and had a dissection. Then they, then they went home and had a dissection. <laughs> <laughs> so, when we get into moderate and severe attacks, uh, usually the go-to are anti-emetic dopamine receptor blockers. They're the mainstay. These include prochlorperazine, 10 milligrams, and metoclopramide, 10 milligrams, IV or IM. This is Compazine Reglan, for those of you that like brand names. So, you know, don't waste your time giving these PO. They don't work as well. Procloperazine, as effective or even more than metoclopramide or sumatriptan, it's more effective than opioids. We'll talk about opioids. Don't give them for headaches. And uh, metoclopramide is as good as sumatriptan. Interesting. That's fascinating. Yeah, I know. It's so interesting, these dopaminergic agents. They have so much crossover with other neurologic symptoms and psychological symptoms and it, it is so fascinating the response some people have with these. To that, droperidol, it was black boxed. It was basically banned. I know when I was an ER tech, when I was uh, 19 years old at good old Tallahassee Memorial, they gave droperidol out all the time. And in residency, it was gone. I didn't see it anywhere. And it just made a resurgence. We actually just got it approved back to use in the ER here. So I will be using it shortly. How about you? Are, do you use it? Gosh, I love droperidol. I could do a whole podcast on it. When I was finishing residency, droperidol was just coming out you know, back on the market. It's only been a few years ago. And I love it. Um, it's now part of our agitation protocol guidelines, and it just has so many versatile uses for headaches, for nausea treatment, chronic abdominal pain, hyperemesis cannabinoid syndrome. And the best part about droperidol here is that it was studied in 300 patients in a randomized controlled trial, and it was found to be better than placebo for headaches, but higher rates of akathisia. But you know what's really interesting here is that in this study, guess what doses they were using of droperidol? Um, eight? Insane. Yeah. Insane. <laughs> Eight milligrams, insane high doses of droperidol. So for those of you listening out there, if you're not familiar with the dose of droperidol, so like 2.5 is a reasonable dose for agitation treatment. And these people were giving eight milligrams. Why well, wonder people got QT prolongation with this thing back in you know the 90s. So the thing is that you're going to not use these high doses. So if you use lower doses, I, I guarantee the acathizer is going to be much less. Two systematic reviews found droperidol was good or better than procloperazine as well. And this has been talked about a lot on the, you know, in the foam world, foam ED world, about the use of haloperidol and droperidol for headaches. And I would say right now, you know, informal poll of EM physicians, and anyone's welcome to comment or write to us if they think differently, but I would say the general pulse right now, Travis, is that most people are using procleroperazine and metoclopramide still. And droperidol and halidol are used as those backup options. Is that pretty reasonable? I concur. I concur with you for a third time. And, um, you know, I, I have like a five step approach to it. You know, I will usually use, and, and we'll talk about, you know, Toradol 15 milligrams, and I'll combine that with Phenergan or Reglan and then reevaluate them. 
you know, 15, 30 minutes and I'll use the same dose again. Mm -hmm. And then after that, I'll, I usually will go to something different and uh, maybe I'll give them Decadron. I know that won't help, but I usually, if they don't get better after two doses, likely I'm going to have some mm -hmm. rebound effect mm -hmm. when they leave. So I'll give them that. Maybe I'll sprinkle some diphenhydramine. Mm -hmm. um, but I usually will, will go to valproic acid, 500 milligrams IV. Oh, look at you. And I use uh, Haldol as my mm -hmm. fourth line. My goal, I call it the goaltender. <laughs> all right. Five milligrams. Stop it. Worried about, you know, achesthesia, but it is the goaltender. <laughs> After that, I will do yeah. <laughs> um, a ketamine 25 milligram, you know, over 15 minutes. And then if I have to, I will bust out the propofol. Oh, wow. The Rick Pescatori move. Yes, yes. And I actually used his protocol to get uh, approved at our hospital within the past month. So Sweet. That's awesome. And quick aside for our listeners, you know, we're happy to share anecdotal evidence as we're doing right now. It's great to hear Travis's years of experience. But just as a record here on your test question, you'll never be asked anything like this ever. Uh, the boards are, in general, not really going to test you on headache treatment, as long as you don't do anything insanely silly, like send a patient home without a CT head if there's concerning features. So uh, for the record, you're not going to be tested on any of these treatment therapies unless there's contraindications to the medications, like, you know, prolonged QT, you're not going to give Trepair at all, et cetera, et cetera. Or if they have uncontrolled hypertension, you're not giving Triptan. So what we're sharing now is just good anecdotal evidence, and and, and this does vary a lot with practice. So we want to make sure you understand that that's where we're coming from. Quick thing about how it all is, you know, it's not as well studied, but in smaller studies, it did no better than metoclopramide and had higher rates of akathisia and sedation. So as Travis said, he's using that as a backup option, usually not our first-line option for most headache cocktails. So Benadryl, diphenhydramine, it's usually given oral or IV, 12.5 or 25 milligrams. The interesting dogmatic belief is that it reduces the risk of akathisia, but it is unknown how true this is still. It definitely does not reduce the headache pain, as shown in RCTs. You can give oral Benadryl and discharge them, but I've personally found as long as you ask the nurse to very slowly push the anti-emetic agent, the risk of akathisia and other anti-emetic side effects are very low. What are your thoughts on that? I feel like I used it a long time ago. It's just not something that I, I reach for. I mean, it's not really Same. in my protocol unless I'm like, you know, grasping for straws. Mm-hmm you know, or unless they get itchy. I mean, it's not really something that I, I, I routinely, I don't think it helps prevent any of those side effects. Yeah, same. Does every migraine patient have to wait in the ED for hours and take a nap? No, but some do. And uh, I think that's a case-by-case -case thing we're not going to get into. You already mentioned Catorolac or Toradol, a low-cost alternative. In addition with those, uh, with no contraindications to NSAIDs, we give 15 milligrams per dose, IV or IM, and you can give those with the anti-emetics. Usually alone, Catorolac doesn't work as well but it does work very effectively with anti-medics. Yeah, well, I love that medication. I give that routinely on, on, on a daily basis. Kidney stones, I mean, it, it, works, it works great. Talk about some uh, steroids here. This gets a little bit of interesting controversy. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's not one of those things that's going to give you an, a, an immediate reduction of the headache, but it does reduce the rate of uh, headache recurrence. And the ev evidence comes from a meta-analysis of about seven randomized control trials in the ED and, and headache clinics. Uh, of those 738 patients who got DEXA, uh, had a reduced rate of headache recurrence at 24 to 72 hours. No major adverse effects were identified. Caution in, in those at risk for steroid toxicity or who have recently been on steroids, you should only be given this drug, those with a real history of migraine headaches. And also, we got our favorite IV fluids. I recently just opened up in EM News and uh, saw a wonderful article uh, where you are endorsing abnormal saline. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. I love normal saline. 
Love it. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> IV fluids, lactated ringers, okay? There's no evidence that it helps, but there's no evidence that fluids with headaches harm either. If I'm having to try to get the patient discharged, I don't wait for fluids to be done. I mean, you can give them or not. I mean, if they're vomiting and they're dehydrated and tacky because they're throwing up, I mean, you know, certainly if the patient requests it, I mean, why not? But, you know, it's one of those things. Their arms are bent in bed and they got the whole leader hanging and it hasn't been going for two hours. And you're like, ah, you're fine. You can go. Exactly. Hey, let's talk about the elephant in the room, triptans. So triptans are what we learned about in medical school, right? No one ever talked about the antiemetics. They talked about triptans. So triptans are serotonin agonists. They may be an option for you as well. However, they probably won't be an option after we talk about this. <laughs> Sumatriptan, subcutaneous or nasal spray is the most commonly given triptan agent. But you got to really be careful giving triptans in general. The contraindications to these medications are serious, along with their side effects. And the incidence of drug-related CNS side effects with triptans is as high as 15%. And it may be associated with functional impairment and reduced productivity. There's a lot of debate on how much triptans increase the risk of stroke. But honestly, I don't know why this should come up in discussion. There's such an easy availability and success of antiemetic drugs. Everything we just talked about. Notice how Travis and I have never mentioned once that triptans are part of our normal armamentarium of headache drugs. Triptans should never be used in any patients with the following. You ready for this? Get a pillow, take a nap. Here we go. So should never be used in any patients with the following. Ischemic disease, CAD, coronary vasospasm, stroke, TIAs, hemiplegic migraines, peripheral vascular disease, uncontrolled hypertension, any recent use of a serotonergic agent in the last 24 hours, any use of a MAO inhibitor in the last two weeks, or any arrhythmia with an accessory conduction pathway. What? Yeah, what? <laughs> Tons. Oh my gosh. So we avoid these. You know, the other thing to think about is, is you should never think about using a triptan in someone who has a severe headache with a non-diagnosed history of migraines. Like, that's just asking for trouble. So... We stay away from these. I purposely don't use them. What else do you stay away from? Uh, things like opioids. <laughs> Wait, hold on. So you're telling me that you don't give your migraine patients morphine? Yeah. Oh, Dilaudid. Oh, yeah. Gosh. I do not give Dilaudid for headaches. Uh, on Dancitron, uh, Zofran, it's poorly studied, but has been associated with high incidence of headaches as well as a side effects. So as we wrap things up here, you know, I want to echo a critical point that I often tell residents or students, and that's if you're treating a quote-unquote migraine headache, and it's treated successfully. This is not considered diagnostic of a migraine, as other primary headaches and secondary headaches may also improve with treatment. This is so critical and so important. Don't get trapped. Do not fall for the successful treatment that I can now discharge a patient and nothing bad is going on. Always remember that. Love the reinforcement. Absolutely. Well, cool. Well, thanks for coming on again, Travis. This has been awesome as usual. Remember our website, emborebombs.com. Travis, why don't you give us your Twitter so people can find you? At Rosanelli EM. You got it. And I'm at Blake Briggs MD. So check us out sometime. Check out our website. Travis, thanks again for coming on. Stay tuned for future episodes, future content. And again, check out our EM Rapid Bombs podcast for really the premium aspect of drip medicine learning. The best way to learn. Thanks, Dr. Briggs. Appreciate it.